Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me to discuss the return of the Brexit wars and the other big stories this week is my colleague, Caitlin Doherty, and I would die to say we're also joined by the former Cabinet Minister, David Gork, as well as Professor Anon Menon, who is Director of the UK in a Changing Europe think tank. So, Caitlin, it does feel like it's 2018 all over again for us veterans of the Brexit wars. You know, um, those two little words in a Sunday Times uh, article, Swiss-style arrangements, have kind of kicked off a big furore about kind of where we are with Brexit. And I think it's, it's a good chance for us with the panel today to kind of discuss where we are in terms of how much we moved on from sort of 2018, 2019, um, and where this government's going to go, and actually perhaps in a sense how little we've moved on as well. So just sort of talk us through how we got to this point and, and what you saw you at the CBI conference this week, and where obviously it was a hot topic for both the Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, and also Keir Starmer as well. So just what have you kind of made of it, really? It does certainly feel like we've uh, stepped back in time a little bit this week. Brexit really is the story that uh, keeps on giving, and it was all kicked off um, over the weekend when we all first saw the pages in the Sunday Times newspaper. Uh, Sunday Times said that senior government figures they reported are planning to try and put Britain on the path towards what they called a more Swiss-style relationship with the European Union. Now, that would mean... um, closer economic ties and as the paper noted you know it's likely to um, make some of the more hardline conservative brexiteers really really um quite angry and it's sort of the aim of that would be to achieve this more frictionless trade now that we are out of the eu and the government are obviously really keen to be striking all of these uh, trade deals with nations and blocs around the world with perfect timing on monday morning uh, prime minister rishi sunak was due to speak at the cbi conference in birmingham the cbi being the confederation of british industry a really big really uh, influential business group Inevitably, this came up in the uh, questions at the end. And, you know, people were very, very keen to hear what he had to say. And he was quite clear. He said, on trade, let me be unequivocal about this. Under my leadership, the United Kingdom will not pursue any relationship with Europe that relies on alignment with EU laws. So it seemed like he was quite keen to sort of, you know, really put the pin in that. But I think as we've seen for the last six and a half years now, I mean, this this is something... It's a story that has completely reshaped the relationship of the Conservative Party, not just with other political groups, but with itself. You know, it is ultimately the dividing line that's sort of forged down the middle of the party over the last six years. But, you know, the Chancellor is concerned with the economy. I'm sure Rishi Sunak is also quite concerned with how a lot of his MPs feel. So everybody trying to strike those really quite delicate balances at the moment. Hmm. Um, I'm sure it'll be one that keeps giving going forward. Yeah, Anand, I get the strong feeling we've been here before. Can you explain this kind of Swiss star thing and why why obviously the government at the time didn't go for it and why perhaps the EU would be unlikely to go for it again? Well, the government didn't go for it, uh, as hinted at by the Prime Minister, because the Swiss deal implies paying money to the European Union. It implies lessening your control over who comes into your country because there's a freedom of movement aspect to it. And it implies having less control over your laws. So for a referendum campaign that was run under the banner of control, Switzerland in that sense would be an odd place to end up. It's worth saying because you know there's all this talk about frictionless trade. One of the high points of the referendum campaign for me was Dan Hannan posting a photo of himself at a Swiss airport saying, we can do Switzerland because we can have frictionless trade. And what he forgot to notice was he'd photoed himself in front of a customs post. (laughs) (laughs) 
so trade between Switzerland and the European Union isn't frictionless, is what you're yeah. pointing out. It just involves less friction than the trade and cooperation agreement does. Yeah, and it's still it's kind of a mixture of lots of hodgepodges of deals that have been done over the years, isn't there? And there's no way that I guess that a, a country starting from scratch, in a sense, the way that the UK is, necessarily the EU would want to try and replicate that, I suppose, as a model going forward. This is something we tend to forget in this country when we say we want something, is that there are two sides to a negotiation. If there's one thing the EU hates, it is the Swiss deal. Uh, They want to get rid of it. They want to simplify it. They never again want to find themselves in a situation where a trading relationship with a neighbour is governed by 120 plus different sectoral agreements that make enforcement virtually impossible. So the idea that that the EU are about to replicate something like that for us, I think, is frankly, for the birds. Mm. And, and David, I guess you must be feeling a bit of sort of Brexit PTSD when you hear things like Swiss styles uh, arrangements and, you know, uh, Max Facts or you know, all, this, all this kind of these, this kind of glossary of, of Brexit bingo words that we were kind of all dealing with in 2018, 2019. You know, wh- what did you kind of make of it, you know, and what happened to kind of get Brexit done and the oven ready deal? You know, what, what does it kind of say about, I suppose, where things have moved on or haven't moved on, you know, since those Brexit wars, those the votes in Parliament that we saw uh, when you were in, in, in Parliament? Well, what, what's striking about it is, in a way, we just can't move on because the, the tensions and the trade-offs that we spent interminable hours debating in 2018, 2019, in, 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 in my case, uh, particularly around the cabinet table, mm. th- those trade-offs still exist. Yeah. Uh, you know, those points about, you know, if we want regulatory autonomy and we also want frictionless trade, well, you kind of can't have both. Uh, and, you know, that that's broadly the, the, the tension that's there, but obviously there's lots of details um, underlying that. And uh, where we've got to is it's very evident that Brexit is making it much, much harder to trade with the EU. That is having an impact on our economy. Um, you, know, you are finding lots of real world examples. I was I was doing a, a public meeting a, a, a few weeks ago with a very prominent figure from the Brexit campaign in 2019. And there was someone there sort of saying that I run a sort of talent agency. I've, I've got groups that you know, traditionally go around touring Europe and now it's a complete nightmare. You know, all of these problems are sort of bubbling away and you can't escape them. But then you come to, well, what are we going to do to try and solve it? And then you, you're, you're faced with you know, some of those points that Anand is making, that you know, if, you, if you want a deal that solves these problems, you have to have freedom of movement of people, you have to have um, you know, contributions to a budget, you have to have regulatory alignment, at which point every, you know, another set of people kicks off and says, oh, we can't possibly have that. And, and the thing is, this isn't going to go away because the, the economic damage is real and it's apparent and it's substantial. And people are going to say, well, we have to do something about it. And then and then we're back to, well, what do we do about it? We're With all the problems that are faced and sort of any compromise that you might come up with, and, and some compromises, I think, are, are more sustainable than others. But any compromise that you come up with, you're sort of open to the accusation of, well, this isn't delivering a proper Brexit. And actually, it's not giving us all the advantages of EU membership, because, you know, with some of the you know, ideas, we, we, we become rule takers. And that doesn't feel like a great place for the UK to be. In. No. 
Looking more at the political side of this, I mean, it's all political, obviously, rather than the economic side that you've been focusing on there. I think it's pretty easy to forget that, you know, it was only this time three years ago that we were in the middle of that 2019 general election campaign or coming up to it, where Brexit was the defining issue on all of the panels, on all of the talk shows. It really was the main thing that people wanted to discuss. So those arguments or those wounds, battles, whichever descriptive word people may want to use to describe them, they are quite fresh and they still exist in, you know, quite a large part of both political parties at the moment. So I think it automatically becomes something that's quite fractious as soon as the B word get men- gets mentioned again. As soon as you have a story on the front page of a newspaper or somebody making an intervention, it flies straight to the top of the headlines and you have the scrapping start all over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it feels like the finger of blame on this is kind of pointed towards Jeremy Hunt, this idea that he is behind these briefings. He was at the Treasury Select Committee this week and carefully worded his response in in denying it. But I think the reason is that clearly the government are trying to grow the economy and repair some of the damage. And obviously, one of the ways that we know that you can do that is by getting high-skilled immigration, by getting low-skilled immigration as well. You know, um, I'm just going to come in on that and say, actually, I think... I think you're absolutely right that Brexit is still a very toxic issue right. for a lot of people. But what does seem to have happened is that Brexit is now being viewed far more as an economic issue than it was in 2019. That is to say, the fact that we're facing an economic crisis means that most things are now viewed through the lens of economics. And looking at Brexit through an economic lens makes it look very different to looking through it from a sort of cultural or sovereigntist lens, which was how Mm. most people were discussing it, certainly on the Leave side back in 2019. And I think that accounts for a lot of the shifts in public opinion and the shifts in the nature of the debate that, you know, discussing Brexit when the economy is tanking is very different to discussing Brexit when things are relatively calm on the economy. I agree agree with that. And I think what's, what's really interesting is... Um, the chances are that that trend is only going to intensify because we're now going to have this year and next year with living standards falling. And on the basis of, you know, the OECD came up with their projections, uh, I think it's more or less in line with with where others are as well, which suggests that outside of Russia, uh, within the G20, the UK is going to be the worst performing economy. It's not terrific for Germany, but but, you know, it, we, we are going to be doing badly, relatively. And if we continue to look at this through an economic lens, and, and my view has always been that we needed to do that, um, then I think I, I think the sort of sense that Brexit is failing is going to grow. And there's some really striking opinion polls knocking around at the moment. I mean, a lot of attention on the YouGov one sort of saying, were we right? Were we wrong? And that's now what you know, fifty-six wrong, thirty-two percent right. Um, but look, to be fair, that just might sort of, you know, that's people looking backwards, and maybe that's reflecting a sort of sense of well, it's not worked out, but we are where we are, and have to make the best of it. But even if you just look at the the opinion poll saying, do you think we should join the European Union or should we stay out? There is a consistent lead for joining the European Union. The last poll, I think, was 56-44. That, that's really quite striking, given that there is no mainstream political party, at least in England, um, that is making that case. And, and yet, you know, quite a comfortable majority 
you know, it'll get knocked about if there's a campaign. Uh, you know, that's not an overwhelming consensus. These things can be quite volatile. But but at the moment, a comfortable majority favours a policy that no political party in England is advocating. Yeah, and it's also interesting that, that actually that for Sunak as well, it's not the electorate in a sense that he's got to look at. It's not the wider public, it's within the Conservative Party. What do you think, David, he could do perhaps to quell some of the kind of ERG anger? I think they sort of smoothed things over a bit this week, but it clearly there are fears not just on migration, this idea of the single market, but also there's a bit of a fear that that the mood music on the Northern Ireland Protocol is perhaps they're going to back down and allow some ECJ involvement. Do you see this being another set of rebellions on this stuff? There's pushes for Sunak to bin the plans to get rid of all EU law from the statute books next year. You know, how do you kind of see that stuff playing out? Well, the, the, the problem is that there are a set of policies that even now some Conservative MPs are advocating that would obviously be economically damaging. So the uncertainty caused by the EU retained law bill, you know, basically businesses don't know what what regulations they're going to be operating under, you know, in a few months time. That doesn't make any sense in these circumstances. If you don't concede, you know, something on the Northern Ireland Protocol bill, and after all, ECJ jurisdiction over Northern Ireland in limited circumstances was something that the government happily signed up to not that long ago. Um, if we if we're really going to sort of dig in on that issue and and risk a trade war, I mean that that would be absurd in any circumstances, particularly in the current circumstances. So I think Sunak does have to face down the hardliners in his parliamentary party. Because, you know, they seem determined to make a bad economic situation worse. And were he to kind of basically be bullied into uh, taking their position, then then the economic damage that will, will follow would be extraordinary uh, in, in these circumstances. So, so, I mean, he's got he's got a really tough um, position here, um, but I think he just does have to face them down and say, look where the economy is. Are we really, really going to... Um, make this matter worse. I, I mean, David, I have a far better sense of this than me, but one of the interesting things about the Parliamentary Conservative Party at the moment is I'm just not sure what issue people are willing to go to the wall over. That is to say, there are so many things floating about. There's the relationship with China, there's planning, there's onshore wind, there's the state of the economy and taxes. There are, there are so many different sort of pet issues uh, on which Conservative MPs have problems with the government position. I'm just not sure to what extent either they've moved on from Brexit or to what extent Brexit is a safe haven that allows you to posture more safely than, say, on the autumn statement where voting against the government is a bigger deal. So it'll be very, very interesting to see whether there is some give. You know, we've seen recent stories about the ERG membership having shrunk, which I don't know whether they're true or not. But I don't know whether we're still in 2019 where this is the the issue to to beat all other issues anymore. But I think David's absolutely right. Rishi Sunak is going to have to find out because ultimately if the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill becomes law, we might find ourselves in trade war territory, which at this current economic juncture would be foolhardy to say the least. 
Mm. Yeah, we're, we're going to come on to whether actually whether the, maybe the Conservative Party in its current guise is essentially ungovernable. We'll come on to that a little, a little bit later. But one of the big issues that tied to this all this European stuff is migration and kind of the economic benefits. Obviously, politically, the government and successive governments have wanted to bring down immigration. We've got new figures out uh, this morning. Um, just want to talk us through some of those new figures on the, from the ONS about net migration. Yep. So the ONS release this morning um, has told us that net migration to the UK has climbed to a record level of uh, just over half a million. Uh, This has been driven by a number of events, you know, the end of lockdown restrictions, students returning was one that I heard mentioned this morning, but also the um, war in Ukraine. And obviously the UK has taken some refugees from Afghanistan during that time as well. Around 504,000 more people are estimated to have moved to the UK than left in the 12 months to June 2022. So it's taken about five months for these, uh, you know, figures to be released as is normal. That's up sharply from the last set of figures we had, which was the year to June 2021, when 173,000 people came to the UK. Now, obviously, that period would have covered from summer 2020 to summer 2021, yeah. which is when certainly in Europe we had some of the strictest lockdown restrictions mm. that. But that but we even had. as even as a comparison with previous, you know, with not just mm. with, with pandemic years, it's it's higher than it has been before. And I just wondered how you think that's going to play into this current debate around Brexit, because obviously for a lot of people. The idea was obviously that, that it would bring down migration, even though obviously net migration is is a separate issue because it's about immigration from around the world, not just the European Union. Do you think it will bring this issue back into sharp focus? And we've talked a lot uh, with, with David about the economic issues around Brexit. But of course, for a lot of people, it was, you know, it was our laws, it was our borders, it was our money. That was the refrain that we heard a lot, especially in the last few years. Do you think that the migration statistics will bring that element of it back into focus? It will. Uh, I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, partly what we have at the moment is the studied ambiguity of the Leave campaign coming back to haunt them. That is to say, there were very, very clearly two sets of opinions uh, amongst the Leave supporters. One was, we need to take back control of our borders and slash immigration. The other was, we're going to take back control of our borders and have a liberal immigration policy. We've got the latter and the people who supported the former are now kicking off about it. To the point where, you know, there was that wonderful moment under the Liz Trust government where you had a prime minister planning to liberalise immigration uh, rules because she wanted to boost the economy at exactly the same moment as you had a Home Secretary saying, I want to bring them down to the tens of thousands. So that division is there and very real within uh the Conservative Party. Uh, I think it's worth saying, and the ONS stressed this, that this might be something of a one-off for the reasons you said. That's to say, this is probably not going to be a trend. It is a combination of Hong Kongers, Ukrainians, the ending of lockdown, you know, a new visa regime for students means that they're coming in, but a lot of these people will leave, if not most of them. So, uh, I don't think we're seeing the beginning of a trend here, but I think there is absolutely no doubt that over the next 24 hours or so, you'll see this fight kicking off again within the Conservative Party uh, between those who want the numbers slashed and those who want them increased. Rather unfortunately, this happens at the same time as too many politicians are blurring the lines between legal and illegal immigration. That is to say that the debate about small boats gets caught up on the de- in the debate about legal immigration, which helps no one and doesn't exactly make for good public policy. No. This was a hot topic again at the CBI um, earlier this week. Uh, the Director General, Tony Danker, was pushed on it quite hard in his speech, uh, which was just before uh, Rishi Sunak spoke. He spoke about the country having, you know, vast... Uh, 
labor shortages and you know immigration being the one thing that sort of boosted the country's growth since earlier this year when sort of the economic crisis really started and he was saying that there aren't enough Brits to go around for the vacancies that exist and there's a skills mismatch in a lot of these cases so he was calling for economic migration in these areas that need it while upskilling people and giving more training to people who are already UK based and in exchange you know making visas fixed term at the same time as agreeing a skills policy so it was quite interesting given those were basically some of his final words before the prime minister stood up and make this, made this big address to all of these business leaders. Yeah, I think as well, people a lot, talked a lot about the skills shortage, but the skills shortage is separate from the labour shortage. There is just a big hole in the labour market that needs to be that there needs to be filled. And, and it's very difficult to see how you would do that without sort of migration, despite this kind of stuff. And Dave, I just wanted, before we move on from Brexit, the ERG was mentioned in, in passing earlier. Were you not at some point a member of the ERG? Or were you signed up to the ERG? And, and, and if so, can we go through a bit of your history with Brexit? Your, your pinned tweet on, on your Twitter so profile says that it's another good day not to be a Tory MP. You know, can you just just explain a bit of that for me. Yeah, not only was I a member, I think I was I was a treasurer. Um, right, okay. For, for a spell. Um, no, look, I, we, Alan's, um, Alan's looking very surprised in the, in, in, about this. Yeah. No, no, I have to say I knew this because I mean David came out with one of the best lines ever. I can't remember what event it was. It was a couple of years ago, and he said I used to be treasurer of the European Research Group at a time when they were interested in Europe and actually did some research. Which I thought <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it would be fair to say there's a combination both of um, of, of my views developing and uh, the ERG's views yeah. developing in sort of diametrically opposed. Uh, directions so now i was i arrived um in, in parliament in 2005 you know pretty euro skeptic largely driven by skepticism about the uk joining the euro um uh, and it was it was it was more sort of economic focused and i thought this this was a rather it was it was a very small group you know we would we would literally the entire group would meet round a uh, one table for breakfast you know there were sort of like eight or nine of us um, yes, it was, you know, it was certainly sort of Eurosceptic. And, and so I got involved and had the sort of well, quite small role as treasurer. And then uh, I think I actually stayed a member, although uh, I stopped really going to any meetings um, after the 2010 government was, was formed. And so I was a sort of, sort of absentee uh, member. And over that time, it, it sort of grew into being a sort of explicitly sort of leave organisation. To be fair, it wasn't even an explicitly leave organisation. And uh, never mind a sort of hard Brexit organisation until after the referendum, by which time I had I had left it. And um, it, yeah, it, it, uh, it became a much bigger campaigning group. And yes, as Anand said, it was it was it was it was largely sort of six or seven, eight or nine of us who uh, chipped in to fund a researcher on European policy. Um, but for me, as I became a minister, as I got, to be honest, I got more experience of the European Union, um, attending meetings, but also sort of seeing the benefits economically. Uh, and also, I think you know, this is a point that kind of got missed in the sort of great debate. If you go back sort of 30 years ago, there was a momentum towards a much closer you know federal europe uh, and it wasn't quite clear you know where member states were going to sort of fit in with this i, I think the momentum towards that you know very deep integrated europe at least whilst we were there as members had, had rather sort of slipped away and so i wasn't 
so worried about that anymore. What I could see was an organisation that cooperated and found ways of bringing down trade barriers, and I thought that was a rather good thing. Uh, yes, I am fully admit to being a member of UNRG for many years, but uh, I, you know, there's there's not much common ground now, I think it'd be fair to say. Well, yeah, and, and, and going back to that, I was talking about the, the Conservative Party, it does feel as though there are lots of rows blowing up across various policy strands at the moment. Obviously, Rishi Sunak entered number 10 saying he wanted to unite the party, but we're seeing rows uh, over planning really breaking out this this week that have kind of always been there I suppose and, and similarly over, over Brexit as well you know we're seeing the news of some MPs um, going to stand down at the next election some senior MPs some younger MPs who are leaving parliament as well David do you, do you think that the Conservative Party your, your old party is ungovernable at the moment do you think it's in a sense it, it, it can't carry on it's going to have to have a period in opposition because no one person can bring those wings together and, and keep a party and, and do governing under these circumstances? Well, if you look at what's happened with the Conservative Party, it went through pretty sort of tumultuous three years after the referendum period, but then won a spectacular general election victory. But it won a victory on a very odd coalition of support um, that was held together by Boris Johnson that was based on getting Brexit done uh, that was also based on keeping Jeremy Corbyn out. And once you take away Jeremy Corbyn and once you know the Brexit issue changes, as I say, it hasn't gone away, hasn't really got done, but but it's it's not the issue that it was in 2019. It was hard to see kind of quite what was going to hold the Conservative Party together in its new form. Uh, and yeah, I think it's kind of really struggling. It doesn't really have a clear economic message. Is it is it low taxes or is it fiscally conservative? Is it is it about lowering trade barriers or is it about national sovereignty? Yeah, these tensions have have not been resolved. And and then you sort of feed in a sense of a degree of demoralisation when you're as far behind in the opinion polls as the Conservative Party currently is. You know, people are looking at this thinking. I'm going to lose my seat, or if I'm not going to lose my seat, we're going to be in opposition. Being in opposition is not nearly as satisfying as being in government, and we could be in opposition for quite quite a long time. So you start to see people making choices, and look, you know, if at an individual level, I mean, I haven't spoken to Chloe or Will Rag or so on, but you can imagine that that people are thinking, if I, if I get out now. Um, I mean, not give up the seat, but essentially, you know, put myself on the job market and start looking you know, for my long-term sort of career options for after the next general election. You know, better to do it now than being one of many after a general election. So, so you can see why it happens. But look, it is really difficult to see quite where the sort of you know, Conservative Party coheres around a, a, a set of values. And, and, and just pointing towards Brexit, do you think that actually, again, it needs a different, perhaps a different makeup of Conservative MPs or a different makeup of government in order to find a more permanent arrangement with the European Union? It doesn't feel as though at the moment we're still stuck in this fairly intractable state of not being able to agree a way forward. I mean, to be honest, I think this is the new normal because the fact of the matter that's is... A ter- that's a terrible thing to hear as a political journalist after the last few years. But yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, OK, I'll take, I'll take that on board. But I only say that because, I mean, the, the, the stark trade-off is the lower the economic costs of Brexit, the higher the political costs. That is to say, you know, you can be inside the single market and mitigate most 
if not all of the costs of having left in economic terms. But the political price for that, I would say, is unacceptable for a country like Britain. Being a rule taker across the board is not something I don't think that's something the UK is ever going to tolerate. So that relationship is suboptimal and is is almost sort of destined to be suboptimal. Uh, I think, I mean, there are two things. One is, is geopolitics. You know, Canadians spend an awful lot of time talking about America. Asian countries spend an awful lot of time talking about China. The EU's neighbours necessarily spend an awful lot of time thinking about the EU because it's a continental scale economy. Added to that is the fact that I just don't see our relationship with the EU reaching anything approaching a stable equilibrium because if it's working politically, it is causing damage economically. And, and vice versa. So, you know, I think this debate is going to rumble on and on and on. And it gets all the more un, sort of unsettling because, as David said, if you put together a governing party on the basis of the fact that we can all agree on Brexit, but we are all fundamentally divided on economic priorities, if you lose the leader who has sort of unparalleled skills at ambiguity and holding a coalition together, and you run headlong into an economic crisis, that coalition is going to start looking very, very fragile indeed. Uh, so there's a sort of perfect storm of factors at the moment that make everything look very, very unsettled. Mm. Caitlin, just then, how do you feel about the, the new normal? How do you feel about that as, as, as your new normal? <laughs> well, like, not looking very happy. Like you mentioned, I feel like I should give up any hope of regularly eating dinner at home at some point over the next uh, five years. Yeah, but, or, or having a home or, be, well, yeah. or being able to heat it, I suppose, as well. Yeah, also that, yeah. I mean, the thing that sort of stood out to me there is returning to what David said about Tory MPs sort of putting themselves on the job market and looking at those next steps. Personally, I have to say probably over the last six months or so, maybe since the spring, summer, that sort of sense of resignation about where this is headed has really started to grow among Conservative MPs, Conservative MPs' offices, even, you know, you have MPs quite openly talking about with journalists, you know, oh, I think if we get, if I think if we manage to get this number of seats, then my seat is safe. But if we only manage to get this number, then I think I'm a goner. Or, you know, people talking about their next steps or where they'd want to go next. And bearing in mind, we've still got, in theory, two years left of this parliament. We It could be another two years until we have a general election. Yeah. That really is quite remarkable in in my view. You know, in theory, some MPs have only, have, haven't even been here three years. They've still got nearly half of their term left to serve if they think they're only going to serve one. Um, but they're already looking at those next steps. And I think that really sort of points towards the uh, morale, shall we call it, in yeah, the Conservative Party indeed, at the moment. Indeed, strange. Just finally, before we let you, you go, obviously, we... we Hearing from number 10 that um, they're going to be perhaps ditching the regular broadcast media round. Uh, it was first reported by my, my colleague Adam Payne. Um, David Uncork the Gork was your nickname when you, when you were in, in, in Parliament, partly due to the fact you stepped up at the dispatch box, but also you stepped up on these broadcast rounds and took difficult, uh, took difficult questions. What do you think it says that, that number 10 are looking at doing this? Do you think that it's, it's the right thing to get rid of it? It's a bit of a distraction? Or do you think that it looks bad? It looks like they're sort of running away from a bit of scrutiny? Yeah, I think more, more the latter i mean there was a there was a spell early 2020 so after the 2019 general election where the today program was boycotted and ministers weren't put up and look i i think you know people are entitled to um expect ministers to be held to account but it's also the opportunity to go out and make the case i mean you you could you know the conservatives are way behind in the opinion polls um they have to spend the next two years in my view demonstrating 
um, you know, economic competence and and general competence, and and that they haven't run out of ideas, and that there's still a purpose in a conservative government. Um, they can't do that if they're under their desk and ceding the ground to Labour, I suppose, as well. Well, yeah, quite. Um, and or, or it would be filled with conservative MPs who are not necessarily being terribly helpful. You know, it, it gives more space to conservative rebels as well. So it seems to me that you should be out there. Yeah, uncorking your ministers. <laughs> well, you know, if you don't want to go on the broadcast round, any any minister listening, you're more than welcome on the rundown each week. That's all we've got time for this week. But you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven day a week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right hand corner of the website. Thanks to my colleague Caitlin Dotti and our brilliant guests David Gork and Anon Menon. Our editor today was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.